Welcome to Creative Places and Faces, the podcast that explores how places can affect our creativity and lives. Irish author Jackie DeBurka interviews artists, authors, and all sorts of creatives from around the world. Travel virtually and explore the world creatively. So my guest today is actually a protege of Salvador Dali himself, who came to me through a very charming man who's another Dali author, Paul Shimmera. I'm so delighted to virtually meet Louis Marcoya and really excited to explore both his own art plus the special places that have affected him in his creativity and his life. And of course, to talk about some stories um, of that time that he spent a good few decades ago with the divine Dali. Louis, you're very welcome. Thank you. So in one of our email exchanges, Louis, you sent me your latest tests that you'd sent for the most recent lenticular, which is called the oxytocin harp. And you actually mentioned that this lives with a short series of paintings that you did on love, and in particular, the alchemy of love, which is a microscopic view of the inside of the brain, showing the look of falling in love intracranial, which I, th- I by the way, I think is a very cool idea, uh, with the figures that are suspended in a pool of oxytocin. Can you talk to us about this work, please, Louis? Yeah. Um, so I, I have a fascination with thought. And ever since I got interested in fractals and thinking that thought had something to do with fractals and that fractal geometry resides within your brain in the form of thought. So mm-hmm. um, I, while Leonardo used stains on walls and clouds and moss on the ground to inspire him, I often use three-dimensional fractals to inspire me to make uh, wor- works that I hadn't thought of previously. So in, in playing with a 3D fractal program called Mandelbulb 3D, I came up with a fractal that to me looked like uh, neural connections with many fractal iterations of that neural correct, uh, connection. And um, it immediately showed me that it was an intersection or a slice of the brain. And I, for some reason, um, Imagine two figures in it and the pool of oxytocin that would form what happened in the brain when you're falling in love. So the brain uh, produces oxytocin and that makes you feel attracted to a person. And I wanted to give a view that most people don't think about. And I like to do that in my paintings to provoke thought. It's where I feel that art has its highest aspiration in making people see and feel things that they hadn't before. Okay, so in a way, it's almost a little bit like, if I'm understanding you correctly, Louis, it's almost a little bit like what I believe happens when we go to a new place uh, and we're having new experiences and the brain, therefore, needs to start to react uh, in different ways. Absolutely, and it's probably some of the same chemical reaction, actually, Um, and the same chemical is probably oxytocin also, and that to me, um, provokes in many people when you when you concentrate on that, when you're in a new place or you're in a new relationship or you're uh, you're forced to think about something like a painting um, that actually promotes new neural growth and will allow you in many ways to think about things 
in ways that you had never before, that new neural growth. And because it's happened, because of that painting or place, landscape, whatever you the cause is, it gives you um, that those neural that neural growth is there forever and allows you to think differently about everything for the rest of your life. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, I was so, as I, as I said, obviously, you know, in your introduction, I was so thrilled that, you know, Paul has introduced the two of you and even more so as I have explored, obviously the, the research that you kindly gave to me before today's chat. Um, I'm wondering, are you aware of somebody called Bruce Lipton? Bruce Lipton. Yeah. I, I, she has the internal brain, like a uh, neural, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I that's, nothing, yeah. it's probably a whole other, like, full hours discussion, and that yeah. would just only be, that would only be skimming the surface. But I think you and I have that in common. It's quite fascinating, given the, you know, given our daddy connection as well, obviously. But as I say, that <laughs> it is an absolutely amazing subject. And, you know, looking at your art, it's very hard to imagine that for around 34 years of your life, you weren't creating artistic work. So can we trace a little bit of the journey of your life to see why this happened, but also kind of bring us back to the present day, Louis, which right now in the, the date of the recording, uh, which will be going broadcast on the 6th of August, that will be three weeks before your exhibition mm-hmm. at the Lipa Ratner Museum of Art. So let's start with the very basics, Louis. Where and when were you born? I was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut, in 1951, on January 1st, on New Year's Day. Wow. <laughs> I've, I've always enjoyed the fact that I was born on New Year's Day. Uh, I, I was born to a, a lower middle class family, a factory worker, and um, lived in a neighborhood where my mother's family pretty much dominated the neighborhood on a very small, poor, dead end road in Fairfield, Connecticut. Um, and a few years after I was born, I had a sister born who was ill, and that took all the attention that my parents were giving to me away from me completely. And I, I really mm-hmm. held a grudge for many, many years uh, against my sister, but it wasn't her fault she was ill. But that was sort of the end of the love that I felt for my family. And I kind of like, even at a very, very young age, probably three or four, consciously checked out of the family because I felt so bad about this not getting any attention or any love. Behind that that um, place where I lived was a small river and a swamp, and that's uh-huh. where I spent, that's where I spent all my time fascinated with nature. Okay. Fascinated, fascinated with the the frogs, snakes, fish, whatever was there, um, and that's where I spent my days. Wow. So this is amazing because, of course, in the in the research that I did, like to lead up to today's chat, Louis, I didn't know that about you. The, 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 the minute you mentioned frogs, I think straight away, obviously, about Salvador Dali. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, yeah. you know, just amazing because obviously, from what you've said, the reason that you had to switch off from your family um, is quite different to, to, to his family setup. But the drama of it, in a sense, if you don't mind me saying, is not unlike his own family setup. It's, it, it is true. There, there was a lot of drama to it, and it carried on for quite a while into my life. Um, but I always felt from that time on, I was sort of independent from the family. Uh, of course, I couldn't support myself, and I lived there, but I, I just felt I, I had checked out. Mm, okay. 
So nature was your sort of like happy place, let's just say, to put it into simple terms. Exactly. That, that was where I found my joy in life. Uh, we'd go down and, and again, like Salvador Dali, was very interested in the grasshoppers and the praying mantises and all those insects that I found in that locale. Wow. <laughs> it is really, that's really, really, really fascinating. So my next question was going to be, and in a way you sort of sort of partially answered it in advance, really, were you creative as a child? I mean, obviously that type of connection with nature by itself is, is, is very creative. Yeah, uh, I, I loved nature and was really in awe of it. Um, but didn't do anything artistically that I could recall until I was in um, middle school, where in, I think, the seventh and eighth grade, there was an art class that met once a week for 20 minutes. And I became interested in drawing cars. And I, I thought at that time I might want to go to Detroit and be an automobile designer. But I was um, really influenced by one particular custom car guy called Ed Big Daddy Roth who designed really remarkable, remarkable um, cars that were all handmade out of fiberglass and had nothing to do or look like normal cars. But I was really influenced by him. And later, much later, came, came to find out that his he was known as the Salvador Dali of car designers. Okay. Wow. Okay. That's that's really interesting. So, so yeah, just you're saying middle school. Of course, some of the listeners are like myself. Maybe it could be Irish. Maybe it could be English. What, what age would that put you at approximately? That would put me at about 13. Ah, uh-huh. okay. Fantastic. Yeah, I have so, no memory of doing anything artistic before that. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's, so what did you like? I mean, I'm just going because the nature part of things, that in itself was fascinating The the, the obviously the very sad but the dramatic you know story with your lack of connection to your family from a certain stage so do you actually have uh childhood memories of that area that are like kind of embedded in your subconscious would you say well or any other area actually yeah there there are there are things that are embedded in my subconscious and in particular one that is um uh, has particular relevance to Dali also is I, I remember quite uh, clearly being born and I was I was born with forceps and uh, the doctor tore a huge uh, hole in my head with the forceps and I remember it very clearly how painful it was I remember it I remember it to this day wow that again a very dramatic entrance and of course yes the the the, the 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 likeness with Dali is very very strong, also yeah. around that subject, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. So some of his intrauterine memories are, are mm-hmm. things that I've shared with him and talked to him about, and and in particular that that event of being born. Um, and my while I was working with Dali, my very first one man show was called the Traumaticism of Birth, based on that event. Okay, okay, and. Yeah, just going back, Louise, so because because just not to hop too too far ahead of ourselves, one question that comes into my mind is what did you feel you were good at when you were younger? You didn't really get into the art side of things as you've said. Nah, I were the subjects I, go on. I thought I, I thought well, I wasn't good in school because I, I didn't really like to study. Um and uh-huh. I I felt I was good in sports at the time. 
And I felt that I had some like other calling, but hadn't hadn't found it. I couldn't I hadn't located what I really wanted to do. I thought that I, I was clever or smart, but hadn't found really how to apply it at that point in time. Um, I'll, I'll go on to like clarify or add to the story of the liking to draw cars. Um, so when I when I graduated middle school and went to high school where they actually had an art class that met every day. Uh, I was thrilled to, to join the art class because I wanted to learn about drawing. And when I got to high school and as a freshman, I enrolled in the art class and the art class, of course, started with art history, which I didn't want to or care about much. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and I can't, I sincerely don't remember what I did to earn this, um, earn this, what the teacher felt of me, but he felt I was disrespectful disruptive and he would lock me in the the clay closet uh for the remainder of the class for most of the year and that was the, really the end of my art career i didn't want to have anything to do with art after that, that what a that horrible fin- story that finished uh my interest in art and until that time and uh, as as you're going to remark later where i found the dolly book in a in a mall in 1968 after i had graduated high school okay Okay, what a horrible teacher! I, I, I've uh, over over the years between you know interviews like this, but just normal chats with people, there have been some horrible stories like the one you've just told, Louis, about yeah. teachers who people who should not be in the profession by the sound of things. Yeah, it's it's really sad. Teachers could really form you good, good and bad. So mm-hmm. um, that that delayed my interest in art by quite a bit, but in the end, uh, it is what it is. So. Uh-huh. I, I think all those things that that happened were part of what formed me and what I am today. So I can't really complain. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would agree with that. So now you mentioned to me uh, that in 1968, Louis, you had a, a life changing moment in a shopping mall. Can you talk yeah. to us about this? Yeah. So, and I went to with a couple of friends to what was the very first mall that opened in Connecticut at the time. And in that mall was a, a, a card store, not even a bookstore. And in that card store was the book uh, Dolly de Dreger, uh, the big gold candy covered book with uh, persistence of memory on the cover. And I, I, I looked at it curiously. And when I opened it, um, I had never even dreamed that art could do or say those things that Dolly was doing in that. In particular, the, the nuclear mystical works, I was really fascinated with the surrealism, but the nuclear mystical works really, really somehow resonated with me. And having grown up uh, as a, a lower middle class person, I my parents never took me to museums. I, I wasn't aware of art. I went with a couple of class trips to the Metropolitan Museum in New York, but only to the like Egyptian sections. And I went to the classical painting sections once but I really didn't have an idea of what modern art was or could do. And when I looked through that book, I it, it just opened my brain in a way that I never thought possible or never had done before. So I wanted to know more about it, but I couldn't afford the book. So I had to write Dolly on a piece of sheet of paper and stick it in my pants and leave it there for <laughs> another year or so before I uh, moved on and bumped into him again. Okay. Okay. What a f- fantastic story. So imagine, I'm just trying to picture your brain, what was happening at that moment in your yeah. brain in terms of, you can imagine the colors, the chemicals, no? Yeah, there was a real storm going on in there. 
you know, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Electrical storm. Uh, I was Mm -hmm. fascinated and astounded. Mm -hmm. Okay. So a year after that, Louis, you and your family, you moved into the town center. Now you would have been around 18 or 19 or so at that time. Yeah, I was 19. Yeah. Okay, 19. And you used to walk to the beach, which was around a mile or even less away from that from that house. Yeah. Was this a landscape? Was this a landscape that affected you, you know, maybe even a, a bit of a similar way as to how Kadeke's influenced Dali from a young age and throughout his life? That, that the walk there didn't affect me, but the beach itself did because it had some very nice views. While they're not the view of Fort Legat, uh, the beach always affected me. And that the, there's something uh, spiritual about looking out of the water. And from where I was, I could see Long Island Sound uh, and Long Island from where I was across the water. It's several miles away, but it really affected me. And there's lots of studies on how the blue of water affects uh, people emotionally. But it it really did something to me that I wasn't totally aware of was happening, but I knew I loved to be there. Hmm. Okay. I mean, you you are not the first guest, Louis, uh, because it's a fascination of my own. Anyhow, D- Dali or not, you know, not with Dali involved, whichever, uh, is the, cre- the creative energy of water. And I've had this discussion with both, you know, writers and artists uh, on, on this podcast. Right, right. Well, it, it, you know, it comes full circle because I, well, coming to understand Dali's nuclear mysticism and why he used rhinoceros horns and whatnot, uh, all really has to do with the motion of fluid, and if if he were if he were around, he would be more into that these days. Um, so yeah, it, it all ties together, and it ties together with work I'm doing currently. Okay, fantastic. So, on your walks to the beach, you passed by the town library, which you mentioned you hadn't had access to previously. And in there, you laid your hands on the amazing book, The Secret Life of Salvador Dali. How did that book affect you, Louis? Yeah, that book I really found as amazing um, through words as his picture book did in the, in the card store. Uh, mm-hmm. He really presents some phenomenal stories through words that you know resonated with me. And through that book, I knew also that he came to New York every year and spent mm-hmm. several months in the winter at the St. Regis. Uh, when I read the book, when I completed it, I... Uh, for reasons like not quite unknown, I realized that I had a lot more in common with him than I thought previously, and that I really wanted to make a point of meeting him. And I didn't know why or for what reasons, but I just had to do it. Okay. So let let me just say say one thing that comes into my mind. You mentioned when we were talking about the beach there, Louis, the word spiritual. Do you think you were quite spiritual from a young age, or you understood those connections to happen for more scientific or some creative reasons? I don't think I was very spiritual. Uh, I was raised as a Catholic, but was really pretty much against a lot of organized religion and um, and didn't think a lot about it until I really started reading Nietzsche much, many, many, many years later. Um, but I didn't think of myself as spiritual. Uh, you know, maybe at, at the beach that, that did make me feel somewhat spiritual and, and Buddhist or whatever. But um, I, I didn't think of myself that way at the time, but I, I would guess it really was true. Yeah, okay. I mean, what, what comes into my mind just just because of your answer and, and kind of absorbing your answer, I wonder perhaps was it your, your 
your need, your your drive to be independent of your family at such a young age that perhaps you were just being more yourself than some other people. You were less affected by some parts of the outside world, you know, like conditioning. Right. Uh, that's probably very true. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. That's that's really interesting. I'm, again, I'm seeing likenesses, obviously, that you'll be very aware of yourself with Dali. So reading the book, obviously, you've just described you felt a connection with him. Yeah. And you made a plan. What 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 was this plan? The plan was to to you know, and since I knew he was uh, came to New York every winter and stayed at the St. Regis, I decided I would try to meet him. And I started calling the St. Regis. Um, after several tries, one Sunday afternoon, I called and it was uh, Dali that answered. And mm-hmm. he said, um, "Yes, you could come to meet me tonight, six o'clock, St. Regis." Okay. That was all the information. So I decided that, you know, I had to go. This was it. And um, I had to take a train from Connecticut to get into New York. And it got me there, I don't know, maybe 6.20 or 6.30. So I walked into the hotel and at the lobby, they told me that I could find him at, in the cocktail lounge, which was down the hall. Mm-hmm. What I did not know is, uh, and I couldn't know, is that every Sunday, the St. Regis closed the cocktail lounge to allow Dolly to hold court there. So <laughs> so I went down to the to the cocktail lounge and there was already probably 30 or 35 people waiting to have their chance with Dolly. Dolly was sitting in the back of the room against the wall and he had maybe 15 to 20 people on either side of him with the most rich or most famous or most beautiful or most bizarre one getting mm-hmm. to have a few minutes few minutes with him at a time before the next one could move in. And I watched it for a few minutes and didn't know what to think. So I sat down at a table and just watched it and and realized that Dolly was never going to get through all these people in a single night because there was too many and there were too many arriving. And I didn't really know what I had to say to him. So at some point an hour or so later, I got up, walked out and decided to go home. And on the way home on the train, um, decided that the way to get to be able to have a conversation with Dolly was to teach myself to paint, to be a painter also, to have something to relate to him about. And okay. at, that, at that point in time, I just decided to learn to paint. Mm-hmm. Okay. So obviously, yeah, it didn't go, the, the first visit to the St. Regis didn't go maybe exactly as you'd hope, but it did give you this motivation you knew then obviously the correct way the best way to connect with daddy in the future so did you, what did you do to learn painting how, how how did you set about this plan so i so as when i got home i decided i was going to paint and uh, within a few weeks i had bought a few canvases and some paints and uh i i started to try to paint and i was squirting i was literally squirting paint out of the tubes onto the canvas and trying to trying to paint and wondering why it didn't look like Dolly. So it was, it was really okay. pretty hilarious to start with. Um, and I, I was I was doing OK, but it sure wasn't looking like Dolly. So I ended up going back again to the library where I had found Dolly and got some books on painting and found out about mediums and how to make paints blend and whatnot. So. Uh, I, I started on that, and as soon as I read a couple books on um, technique, I was able to reproduce things uh, that were much more dolly looking. And the first things I did were little still black and white stills of 
statues inside um, the Sagrada Familia. Okay, that's yeah, that's that's amazing. So, and do you feel that they were fairly accomplished? I mean, you obviously, you know, you you were self-taught, obviously. So, did you feel yeah. for the stage you're at, you were quite accomplished? Early actually, actually, yes. It's the the minute I uh, the minute I finished the book that told me to use a medium, I started to get the colors to blend right and to be able to paint and and mimic Dolly much more close. So, um, what I did at that point is uh, now now we're a few months since past when I went to see Dolly. I started painting things that were very Dolly like, not. Not ripoffs, not not copies. I didn't do I didn't do any copies, but I did things that were extremely extremely similar to many of the Dolly works in his surrealist period. So um, when I when the winter came around from that, I had probably ten or twelve paintings that I had done in that style, including the mm-hmm. the black and white ones that I started with from the Sagrada Familia. I had take, fo- taken photographs of them and I had um, pictures. There were, there were no, of course, this is 1970 and, uh, or not quite 71 yet. And um, there was no internet, there was no computers, there was no digital cameras. So I had actual physical pictures to bring to him. And mm-hmm. I, again, on a Sunday called him uh, to see if I could, couldn't come see him. And he said, yes, come Sunday, six o'clock St. Regis. So now I knew the routine. So I <laughs> made sure I made sure I got a train that got me there almost an hour early. And at something like 20 after five or something, I walked into the lobby and they said that Ali was not down yet. Um, that I could use the house phone to call him to see if he wanted to come down, which I did. And, and he did join me and we went into the cocktail lounge alone now. And he took the time to sit down with me and look through the pictures and he critiqued every one and every single one he had done that particular style or uh, content better. And which, which was kind of funny because I had painted off for, for maybe five, three or six months and Dolly had done <laughs> better, of course. So, uh, but at the end, he, re- he really surprised me by folding up, folding up the, the pictures into like a little package, like a pack of cards and mm-hmm. handed it to me and said, we will do some collaborations. Okay. Okay. Now, he was speaking English to you? He did speak English to me, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and, and, well, we'll hop into that when we're, when, when we're further into how your relationship with Salvador Dali progressed, obviously. Just for, to give some perspective, what age are you around this, uh, this stage? Were you actually studying or doing any other work apart from your... I was, focused I, was, I was doing what my family expected me to do. I was working in a factory. I was actually working in a in a, a small firearms factory, a gun factory. Oh, okay. Wow. That's uh that's a bit yeah, it's, that's a bit different. Quite a contrast once again, isn't it? Quite a contrast yeah. to yeah, what you were Okay. So if I've got the dates worked out correctly, Louis, you managed then it was the winter of uh 71 wasn't it when, when when you actually had that sort of successful meeting with him yes that was that's 70 bridging to 71 yes yeah yeah okay and what happened after that so he he's obviously he surprised you at the end of, of the meeting with him yeah did he contact you soon after what what what, what, what transpired he didn't contact me but what i what happened is i started showing up and he more or less 
gave me the feeling that he expected me to show up. And uh-huh. at, at this point in time, he would uh, he would allow me to come into uh, the studio rooms or his suite where he would do- had done work, and I would have to clean up after him, or I would have to clean his brushes, or I would have to mix paints for him, or go get a magazine for him, or go get a book for him, or do some research for him, or any number of little menial tasks that he would put aside. And many times, like really crazy things that he'd left his cane at a bookstore across town, or he'd left his coat somewhere. And he would, I, would, I was trying to have him sign books for me, and he would sign the book, and then he would write a note in the book, please give Lewis my cane or whatever to show the people that, I, that I'm sort of verified uh, where he was up, <laughs> where he was sending me. So uh, it was a really, really, really crazy and funny times. Um, that, But he did so many things like that that were just outrageous. Okay, okay. I, I'm, I haven't actually sort of, you know, of course the interview is more so about your work and of course the connection with Danny because it's very well it's very important to your own work and and also very you know like you say a fun fun time in your life as well um so you sort of naturally from how you've described it Louis you sort of naturally moved into like let's call it an apprentice type role really no sure yeah, uh, yeah. So, yeah. After doing those t- sorts of tasks for that that particular year, year and the beginning of the next year, I, I had started um, handing over to him drawings and whatnot that were starts of projects that were showing to him that I had actual promise as an artist and as an assistant, as and as someone that he could count on for ideas and projects. So as that progressed, he allowed me more and more to contribute to actual projects that he was working on okay and did he um like when you were interacting with him did Mm -hmm. he appreciate somebody like you obviously saw the fun in in some of his behavior was that the kind of like did was that sort of almost a qualification for the people like yourselves that he had around him at that time well, he he. Well, Dolly had to be the center of attention. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah. And and you and you better not draw from that. All right. Hmm. That would that would really that really gets you on his bad side if you if if you uh, drew from him. In fact, one of the things that that's helped end our relationship is locally in Connecticut and Connecticut newspapers. I was getting a lot of coverage because I was working with Dolly, and Dolly didn't like that I I was getting top billing in those articles, not him. So, uh, okay. So that was like one of the things that that started the the end of the the working relationship. Okay. Okay. Well, let's let's. I mean, it's not that it's that central to our chat, but I'm I'm curious what as well. But let's talk about you went over uh, during the sort of you said to me it was a period more or less of around six years. You did go over to Spain. Did you how much how much time did you spend in his area in Spain, Louis? I, I spent close to a month in his area in mm-hmm. Spain. Um, okay. He had invited me. He had invited me for the opening of the museum, but um, also asked me to help with the opening of the museum. And he had like every, maybe even more than once a week, he would have unofficial openings to people he wanted to impress. So, uh-huh. well, the, the the museum was still coming together, and for the most part, done. But he was still had me dragging, you know, uh, elephant skulls and things like that around the courtyard um, <laughs> to, to help out with. Uh, yeah. But but he he would have like many false openings 
just like his false memories. So he would like and anybody that was important that was around, he would tell them they could come to the opening, but it was an opening he was like staging for them. So it wasn't the official opening. Um, I started by staying in his in his house and Gala, Gala didn't like me being there. I wasn't really her type, and I was kind of happy that I wasn't her type. I was scared. Okay. <laughs> I was scared to death of that notion um, because yeah. I, knew, I knew very well of her young lovers, uh, having seen them in New York and whatnot. But uh, I was glad she didn't like me, but it did get me kicked out of that staying in the house. And one of the really funny stories at that time was um, – Dolly had to find a place for me to stay because Catechas was like completely full at this at that point in time. The people from the French Riviera were just getting the idea that there's a really beautiful fishing town that's really inexpensive, sure, yeah, and fantastic. And and it, and it, as it happens in that year in 1974, the Rolling Stones had actually rented a house right on the road on on the water in Catechas, and. Uh-huh. While they said they didn't want to be known that was there, they had like the most gigantic uh, Rolls Royce that could barely fit on the road to get down into the town. <laughs> so, so it was very, very obvious that they were there. But it was always funny that they didn't want people to know they're there. So, But the place was really full. So the point I was trying to get around to is Dolly couldn't find anywhere for me to stay because the town was full. And he, uh-huh. talked, to, he talked to a laundromat owner that he knew and talked them into giving me a key to the laundromat so I could sleep behind the washing machines for the next three weeks. No. Yeah. So, so that was a, a really, it's a really, really great story. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, how, how did you feel, apart from like, that's obviously a little bit of a crazy story. How did you feel about the area there? Did you connect with it yourself? Oh, the, the area is astounding. You know, it's just, yeah. just, Absolutely breathtakingly gorgeous. You know, it's really, really beautiful. And you could really understand uh, Dolly's passion for the place. Um, and well, it's, it's changed now, but the road, the road that went into Port Legat was just a beautiful walk every morning to go to, to the car that would take us to the museum. And it just uh, that dirt road with the stone walls and the olive trees on either side of the road. It was just it was sort of magical with the wind blowing the silvery olive leaves. And that comes through in a lot of Dolly's work. And he has a few paintings of that road, actually. Hmm. Um, Yeah. But I I thought the place and the geology, obviously, is really magical. It is. It is magical. And what about, obviously, it's a whole different, you know, a whole different environment. But Figueres, where the museum is and obviously where he grew up. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I didn't, you know, I don't know Figueres really well. I just happened to go to the museum and I would go to lunch with him from there. But um, a, a very interesting place. And I, I thought the museum was perfectly fitting for him. Uh, and, you know, it was, it was really thrilling. You know, I, I was, well, uh, in 1974, I was 23 and uh-huh. um, hanging out with Dolly and in his museum and helping him out there. And it was you know, what could be more thrilling? I don't know, you know. No. <laughs> yes, it's hard to imagine. Do you have any particular, you must have loads of anecdotes. Do you have any particular favorite story? I I, I do have favorite stories. One I've told a lot, but I'll, I'll say it is my favorite story. In working with Ali over the years, while I worked with him in the winter, it was my job during the spring and summer while he was in Paris and Spain to come up with new projects after he gained trust in me. And 
Um, a lot of those projects led to uh, many important things, including finding sources for the front surface mirrors to do the stereoscopic paintings with him and whatnot. But in that same place, Edmund's scientific catalog, I had found um, a, a hover car that was just a toy that had like a little flashlight battery handle and a flexible shaft that went down to a little plastic car that rested on the ground. And when you pushed a button, it turned a propeller and it hovered about a half inch off the ground and kind of scooted around. So I had the idea that this could be made into a flying egg, which of course appears in so many of Dolly's paintings, um, a fried egg. So I bought a couple of them. And when Dolly returned the following year, um, brought them to the St. Regis and he was in the bar at the time and I brought it to him and I said, look, I, we could make flying fried eggs. So he was like, his eyes popped out of his head, grabs me, runs and starts running through the lobby. And some poor woman that I'll always remember uh, was horrified. Uh, <laughs> Dolly bumps into her and says, I, I want your plastic shopping bag. She had a white plastic shopping bag. And she's saying, no, you know, you know, that's, that's my thing. So I've been shopping. And he said, uh, he said, um, he said, you're not a genius and I am, and I could make, a, I could make a masterpiece out of this and you can't. So I have to have it. So he grabs the bag and out falls her, uh, lipsticks and cosmetics of all types rolling all over the marble floors of the St. Regis. And he grabs me and run, runs for the elevator. So <laughs> we, we went upstairs. He had the task of, uh, we cut out six ovals of white plastic, the white, really shiny plastic. Dali was painting in acrylic the yolks of those ovals, which became eggs. And it was mm -hmm. my task to paint the, the crisp browns around the edge of the, the eggs. And we glued them on the, the hovercraft. And uh, about six o'clock that night, we reemerged in the lobby, walking these three eggs each on uh, this hovering eggs. And... <laughs> It was really, really astounding. So um, we walked down the lobby and into the cocktail lounge where some poor woman was getting her first press coverage and they had a news ca uh, uh, cast there. And mm -hmm. Jolly grabs my arm, jumps up on the little tiny makeshift stage, closes the top of the grand piano and he puts the, uh, the eggs so they're flying all over the top of the grand piano. And he's holding my arm and he does, he, he, he suggests to me that we're dancing a little Charleston to whatever this woman is singing. So her, her <laughs> time was gone. It was like completely gone. She forget her coverage. After that, uh, we, we took the eggs and walked from there to the Plaza hotel, which was probably two or three blocks away. By the time we got to the Plaza, there was maybe two or 300 people following us, walking the eggs through the streets of New York. <laughs> And when we got to the plaza, there was another news uh, company waiting for us to arrive there. And Dolly got to the top of the stairs and held up the, the eggs to his chest. And he said, in New York, some people walk their poodles. I walk my eggs. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> so that, that, was, that was a really great anecdote and a, a great story and a great night. Yeah. Oh, God, that's absolutely brilliant. So going back to more serious matters... You mentioned, yeah. you know, that he's at this stage, you got, you got to a stage, Louis, where, you know, Dali was really quite trusting you. And, and in terms of your creativity, obviously, in a person as a person and so on, you were involved in lots of different projects with him. Um, and you, 
you were, you know, as obviously was obvious from how you've described the the role, a bit of the old chief cook and bottle washer, you know, was part of that as well. Yeah. But are there, I mean, are there any particular one project or two projects that, you know, still after all these decades that, you know, stay with you that you feel were probably most important from your own perspective? Well, I think working on, he did the changes to masterpieces series of lithographs and I helped out a lot on that and, and just trying to get together double images that could be made from previous uh, classical paintings. So I had done a couple of Rembrandt. He had done one of Rembrandt. We did some of Velasquez and he did uh, one of his own persistence of memory and doing those double images uh, were, were really a great, great thing because it was something that he felt was very personal to him and outside of him didn't happen. And I was really contributing in a great way to give some really great images to him with that. So that was quite rewarding. The thing that mm-hmm. the project that is like maybe most uh, intimate to me was on, in 1976, one of the last times I saw him, I had just visited in the St. Regis in New York and went up to his suite and knocked on his door. He was on the phone. And he had the um, the second painting of the Lincoln uh, Gala observing the Mediterranean, observed from 30 meters, Lincoln painting. He was yeah. doing the second one uh, and it was in his suite at that time. And he was busy on the phone. He picked up a brush and he had a palette made. He had obviously been working on the painting. And he just put a dab of paint in nine or ten of the uh, tiles that make up Lincoln's ear on that. And he gestured me to paint them in. So that's that was a, a really fun project to be involved with. It was all of like 45 minutes to, to finish it. But, you know, that painting hangs here in St. Petersburg, Florida, where uh, in the museum where I live. So it's nice to be able to revisit that. Of course. OK, that, that, that's that's understandable. And what an amazing memory, obviously. Um, did you notice, Louis, you, you know, we're talking about obviously New York a fair bit, but because you spent some time with Dali in Spain as well, did you notice that he was, was he different in any shape or form in, in the two locations and the two environments? I, I, you know, I thought about this a long time and I wanted to say no, but I have to say that at his house, it's, it's a much a different atmosphere than he was say at the museum in New York in, in New York, Dali was always in a suit. I mean, almost always in a suit or he was just with a nice dinner jacket at home, he was much more relaxed, much more relaxed, uh, and dressed more relaxed, and um, had a little bit. Well, he was—he always was out looking for fun and somehow to make a clever, a clever observation. Um, mm. He would come up with stories and make make things relative to uh, that were so obscure that you could have never dreamed it on your own. But Dolly would somehow, through history and some maniacal uh wisdom put things together i remember one in particular he was telling people how how um how excrement was important because uh and it was a i think it the term khaki came from some king or queen and that that it was really royal stuff and that because khaki was like cocky that <laughs> <laughs> That it all had to do with itself, you know, it all tied yeah. together to him. So, well, actually, let me let me interject because it's pro- probably something that you were unlikely to know, you know, if you if you were communicating, able to communicate with him in English, you know, he had enough English 
that you obviously could understand each other, but you may or may not know, Louis, that the, the Spanish word for excrement yeah. is caca. caca. Okay. Okay. So, so yeah, I probably didn't know that at the time when I, when I visited Spain, I was just getting enough Spanish that I could survive and order breakfasts and lunch and whatnot. Yeah, that's normal. Didn't, that's didn't, normal. Didn't, didn't have didn't have a lot more than that. But, yeah, okay. and I mean, you but wouldn't he, normally you wouldn't normally know. You know, that's the kind of word that you would normally need if there's like maybe young children around, or right, you right. know, it, it's like very specific to. It's not something we normally as adults discuss uh-huh. unless unless exactly. there is somebody or unless there is somebody like Daddy there who just decides to exactly know. exactly <laughs> but he had tied the, you know he had tied the whole history of the thing and the colors into it in it even to to, to <laughs> some, some royalty in Spain I, I think France actually but uh okay. so he, yeah. he he could take any subject like that and really t- tell a fascinating tale that is like mostly believable so it was really remarkable times mm. Okay. So one one thing that I noticed again, you know, in my research period, Louis, before today, was uh, another bit of common ground between yourself and him and himself, the master, if you like. Um, you're both deeply influenced by both Barcelona and in his case some parts of Italy, in your case was Rome that you mentioned to me. Yeah. So talk talk to us a little bit about your own a connection with those two places, Louis, and did, did you sort of notice that crossover between yourself and Daddy before also? Well, I would I would think certainly from Barcelona, the 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 Gaudi influence was heavily felt. You know, when I when I went to Barcelona for the first time and saw the Sagrada Familia and the Park Güell and all all the Gaudi architecture there, it, it's just fascinating, and you really get a, a much better feeling for a lot of Dali by visiting and knowing those structures and, and that architecture. So between the Sagrada Familia and St. Peter's, I, I think that there are some of the greatest monuments that man has ever made. And mm-hmm. to me, they affected me like when I, when I think of them, that's how I like to feel about the inside of my cranium. That's what I want to feel is happening in there, that it's really grand and wonderful. Um, And to me, I've always thought of and probably still will do paintings of those two facilities where they are ascending, not people, but those buildings, because they're like the biggest monument that man has made to God. And I think that being in them is so is, is so monumental that I think that they will ascend, not people, but those buildings. How wonderful! What a wonderful idea. Um, okay, have you? Because f- f- I I've only seen some parts of your work. Obviously, have yeah. you featured them in a, in any of your recent works at all? Um, I haven't featured them in recent works, but they're they're the the. There is a, a painting in the works right now that is based on the interior of St. Peter's, and there will be another one that will be the interior of Sagrada Familia that are meant to be intracranial looks. Okay. I'm looking forward to seeing those when when, when they come come into the world, if you like. Yeah, they're 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 in the works. Okay, good. Very good. So you spent, as we discussed earlier on, Louis, around six years with Dali. You touched on the fact that 
stuff, you know, stuff started to disimprove, uh, at least partially because you were getting a bit more attention than he would have liked. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, and the the fifth and sixth year, now some local papers were starting to get a hint that I was working with him and covering it fairly heavily. And they, they did some large articles. And um, I had some pictures of myself with Dolly that I supplied to them. And he saw, he, uh, he of course, had a press service that gave him all the articles that came out with his name. And mm-hmm. he, he saw a lot of these things appearing. And, and my name was like appearing before his name in it. And he didn't like that. And, and that's understandable because I know how he is. And, and um, like, much like um, accepting that he's the master and, and that I was just the protege and that I would have to pay for the taxi rides or the magazine or the book or whatever it was that needed to be paid for when I was with him. And uh, even though I was working in a factory and making $2 an hour, um, I, I just sort of accepted that be- as part of working with the master it was all fine. And uh, I sort of lamented having um, the first part coverage to those articles um, because I, I really respected him so much. And a really funny story, a very short story, a funny one, too, was that. I got to meet and know Andy Warhol a lot through the through the mostly through the Sunday court meetings. Warhol uh-huh. would show up to a lot of those. And Warhol had the very first um, SX-70 from the Polaroid company, which was a really sexy camera at the time. And he had a prototype where no one else in the world had it. And he would always walk around taking Polaroids with it. And I had um, he had taken a Polaroid of me and I had it signed. So I had this Warhol portrait of me. Um, and Warhol tried to convince me that Dolly was old hat and, uh, you know, that I could come to work for him at the factory instead. He knew that I was doing a lot of work and a lot of, um, important work for Dolly. And I, I had uh, almost absolutely zero respect for Warhol. I, and I thought he was kind of a dweeb actually. So okay. <laughs> I was, I was, uh, I was sort of offended by it and I felt so much camaraderie with Dolly that I, I took my, um, my signed Warhol picture and threw it in the garbage as a sign of camaraderie to Dolly for that. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. So, um, okay. At that stage, you know, things, things, as you've already explained, obviously, Lou, you know, they, they started not to go regrettably from your, your end of things, because you didn't actually do anything to cause it. Obviously, they didn't go as well as before. And um, you actually told me at the end of my time working with the master, I stopped painting and drawing, thinking that someday I will pick it back up again. Right. So that someday took around 34 years. What happened and how did you pick it back up again? Yeah. Um, so one of the other things that helped end the relationship with Dolly is I, I uh, had met at that time my fiance and we, we were going to get married. And uh, this is the first real girlfriend I had. So like sex seemed better than Dolly at the time. So, okay. <laughs> so that happened. And for those 34 years, I changed my profession from working in the gun factory to working in the the semiconductor field, uh, semiconductor equipment. And I started working on the lithography equipment for semiconductors, which are really huge, intricate cameras that put the pattern of 
circuits on silicon that become the chips in your computers and phones and whatnot. And I, I spent 40 years in that that profession and worked my way from being not having any college experience, from being a technician to being a principal engineer and having 35 or 40 patents in that field. Okay, so and then from there, let's let's say what actually clicked around this 34 year period to so, start you back in into art. Right. So when I when I finished with Dolly, the one thing that I knew how to do was to make art like Dolly. And I didn't want to do that. Um, Dolly was too good at that. And I, I respected him too much. And I didn't want to even try to go up against Dolly making Dolly types of art. So I didn't know what I wanted to paint for myself. So I stopped. I, I just stopped. Um, and, 19, and in the 80s, or end of the 70s into the beginning of the 80s, personal computers were coming into vogue. And I, I got very interested in personal computers, and in particular, art on personal computers, which was very, very early. Um, I have a story about Dolly with with uh, art and computers also. He, okay. he, he was very interested in, in technology. And the people from CBS Labs dragged in uh, one of the first television computers into the St. Regis one, one day and was showing him that, that you could draw on the screen. And Dolly said, that's great, you know, just uh, just leave it here. And it, it, at the time, it was something like a half or three quarters of a million dollars worth of equipment. And they said, we can't do that. So he just he just kicked them out of the room, and that was the end of the computer imaging for Dolly. But I had always kept it in mind. And in the 80s, when personal computers came about, I started making some art on Atari and Amiga computers that was very Dolly-like. And uh -huh. um, some of the magazine companies picked it up, and I did a bunch of covers and a bunch of articles on the, that art. But that lasted for a few years, and then I just dropped it again as computers became more and more competent, and there were many, many, many people joining the computer art field. Um, I stopped. And in in that time, I had an introduction to, to fractals, regular fractals, and I really had a fascination with them. But they were a little too psychedelic and a little too... Uh, weird to use in fine art, I thought. So in 2011, I found on the internet the advent of the three-dimensional fractal. And when that happened, I saw how many possibilities in it that there were for shapes and form. And it started clicking to me that I could actually use this in art that I wanted to start again. About the same time, I was in Manhattan in Times Square, and I saw a billboard in a theater for a Spider-Man movie that had Spider-Man hanging off the edge of a building in 3D, and I didn't really couldn't understand how it was being done. I knew it wasn't a hologram because it was in color, and holograms didn't have color yet. Uh, and I was really fascinated by it. Um, and on, upon close looking, I found that it was a lenticular. I could see that there were lenses on the sheet that the image was being projected from. And um, I thought that lenticulars had most people known them for like the blinking eye or whatever that they'd get in a Cracker Jack box. Little, uh -huh. little funny things that children have. So I knew that that technology had progressed significantly and i thought that dolly would have been interested in that dolly was of course now dead since 1989 and um i wanted to look into that also so i had those two things under my belt that made me want to start again because i had 
ingrown from me, me trying to do the third dimension on a flat surface from Dolly, which was he was maniacal about. And uh, the use of the three-dimensional fractal was something that I thought was an evolution of Dolly's uh, love of mathematics and nuclear mysticism. And I thought that I could I thought that I could use that to evolve those themes. Okay, interesting, very interesting. So what do you think, if he was here today, or if he could communicate to us, you know, through spirit, what do you think he'd be saying about the work you're, you're doing right, right now? Well, I, what I think is, if, if he was here and not communicating in spirit, he would make it his work and not mine, first okay. of all. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> and uh, the the second thing I would say is that um, I, I think he would like a lot of the aspects of it. And of course, you, you, you can't ever be better or do better than Dolly. So that's the hard part. You know, he, he didn't really often hand out compliments. Um, uh. So I, I, you know, in, in his heart of hearts, I think he would be extremely pleased with how it looks and what it's doing. And the look of the 3D is something that I think he's always wanted and always said he would give pounds of actual flesh for. Um, I, the 3D and lenticulars now are quite deep. It looks like you could put your arm into them up to the, your elbow, and some of them have LED backlighting. And they're full color. You don't need any glasses or any kind of viewer. So I'm positive uh-huh. that this is, the, this is an answer that he would have loved to have. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so do you want to describe? Uh, I can put a photo of it, you know, in in on the website, you know, like by the audio for the podcast. Maybe one of your more recent works and your process and so on for the listeners. Sure. So, um, most recent works are are that love series, and after that came a, a couple of paintings that are large, and one I did of. Michelangelo's David, and another one is a takeoff on a Bougereau's evening painting. Um, what I, I've been trying to introduce technology into my oil painting because um, technology has become like so commonplace to us where we have all the special effects of movies and, and it's trickled down to television now that we, we don't even know when we're seeing special effects anymore. We're so used to it and we're so used to computer imagery that phenomenal things uh, are that are completely amazing and were completely impossible 10 years ago are commonplace in, in video now. So I wanted to take some of that technology and bring it more into the classical arts by using it in oil painting. And that's what I wanted to do by integrating fractals and later on different aspects of computer imagery. Um, and Recently, uh, actually, it's a couple of years now, Google introduced uh, a piece of software that they have called Deep, the Deep Dream Generator, and it allows you to put photos or anything in and have uh, artificial intelligence work different aspects of that photo differently. And by combining it with different textures or le- allowing them to use their own textures makes different uh, makes different pictorial matter out of it and in the case of the david uh michelangelo's david that i did um it made it uh, i used textures that mapped like little baroque like let's say imagery along his appendages on his arms and legs 
and and okay. changed the background and and really made a quite different and amazing um, picture of it. Something very very different than the standard David that everybody's seen a million times. Mm-hmm. And then to um, add life to it, I added a bunch of floating um, cloth in different parts of it, which really made David come alive. And it also made it a lot more like some of Dolly's nuclear mystical paintings um, and gave it the feel of um, some of Dolly's paintings. So um, it's a really endearing painting and the people that have seen it have really fallen in love with it. Okay. And it, and it's, it's five feet tall. So it's, it's, it's a painting that could, you could get engrossed in. Okay. I'm looking forward to seeing that. So do you feel just a very quick yes or no, or, you know, perhaps to some extent, do you feel you're kind of carrying on, you know, it sounds like you are, but maybe I'm, I'm misinterpreting. Are you carrying on some aspects of Daddy's work? Do you feel? I, I definitely feel that. I don't know that. Um, I don't know how much it's recognized by other people. There are certainly some people that recognize it. There are people um, that have called my work genius and that it's all relative to Dolly. And there's people that don't even want to look at my work. So um, it's, I, I think that's the same for most artists, but I definitely feel that part of my task was to have a sort of a continuity and evolution of, of some of Dolly's ideas and, and work. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, that's, that's, that's what I connected with, I have to say. And what is the most important aspect of art for you, Louis? To me, the most important aspect of art is to provide your viewer with material that has them stop and think. Like I said, I, I love to present to my viewer um, something that makes them think deep enough that it will actually allow new neural connections to happen. And, and in that happening, gives them a chance for new outlooks on any topic, not just that painting. So I, I think that art really can change people given the chance that they try to understand. And um, that what I think is uh, the highest the highest thing that an artist could do. Okay, and we touched on that kind of in the beginning of our chat today. Um, I I have to say I really agree with with you because I find my own experience of life so far and how the brain reacts, whether it's art or new places. Um, so I find my own experience would concur, if you like, with what you're saying. Yeah, I, I you know I I know that when I first opened that book in 1968 um, and and saw Dolly's art for the first time, that it it, it changed my entire ability. Uh, to think uh, and and what concepts were available to me, and and that's an important other another important aspect that I came along um, working in art during since I started it again in 2011, and I had talked about uh, my deep reverence for nature, and we're all taught that in school that nature has unlimited bounds and uh, and it is the most creative thing, but what I came to understand in thinking about this is that. The only thing that could compete with nature was was thought itself, because it goes it could go beyond nature. You could take nature and make anything you want out of it. So it it showed me that we all have the potential and capacity to become something much greater, even than nature itself. Mm, That's a massive, a massive one to debate. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is. Isn't it? Yeah, of course. But it's it's like it's it's a it's a great theory. 
yeah. and I'm not going to say do I agree or disagree. I would definitely digest that one. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> very personal, isn't it? It's a very personal um Well, we'll have that debate someday. Definitely, definitely. I look forward to it. So you've you've more or less kind of touched on, on really what what I was planning to, to ask as my next next question, which is, you know, if you feel, if you believe that viewing a work of art has the potential to change a person, but I think the answer is yes, isn't it? Uh, no, no question whatsoever. Yeah. And I, no, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that, and that, that it goes for many kinds of art. I mean, I, I think my art is, highly intellectual. There are some people that feel that it's too intellectual and that's why it's not commercial or whatever. But uh, I'm, for some people that might, that art that might change them might be a, a sailboat or a rose. So it doesn't have to be highly intellectual to do that. I just think that you have to take the time to absorb and and get the emotion from what you're looking at. I guess it's down to, you know, the work of art and that particular viewer at that particular moment in their lives right. and what, what that triggers, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's, there's a billion things that come together and this is why um, the fractals were really, really important to me because of their complexity. And that's how I feel Dolly felt about doing some of his masterworks to try to show that complexity in, in Christopher Columbus or tuna fishing or any of the large canvases that are highly complex. I think he was trying to show how how complex the mind really is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that. So your exhibition that we touched on uh, at the beginning of our chat is at the Lipa Ratner Museum of Art. The name of the exhibition is Louis Marcoya, A Deeper Understanding, which given what you've just, you've just answered is a great name. Um, exhibition Louis is taking place from the 27th of August this year, 2021. And it's continuing continue into the early part of next year up until the 6th of February, 2022. Now, given our chat, uh, again, I sort of semi-know the answer to this. What do you hope that viewers might get from your exhibition? Well, what, what I hope is that I would get some, at least some people, that after walking through that exhibition would feel the same as I did when I saw that book in 1968. Mm-hmm that it's opened their eyes to something completely new and that some of those paintings covered topics that they never saw covered in a painting. You know, I've covered, uh, I have paintings that try to describe gravity, paintings that dis- try to describe thought, paintings that try to describe love, things that aren't typical to think of as works of art that hang on the wall. So mm-hmm. I, I want to open people's eyes to that and, and, see that it too can be beautiful and and very, very touching and emotional. Okay. I I would be very curious. Are you going to be at the exhibition some of the time yourself? Will you pop up there from time to time? What are your plans? I, I will definitely do that. So there's there's an opening on the 27th. There is a gallery talk on the 29th um, mm-hmm. in the afternoon. And I will describe some of the, some of the, my, my feelings about the works and why I did them and why they're relative to each other that would not be obvious to many other people. Um, one of the nice things that the museum is doing is they're putting placards uh, next to every single painting and they're going to have barcodes on the placards that will allow you, if you use your phone, to link to the pages I have on my website about that. So you could get in-depth uh, talk from myself about the most works that are in the show. 
Okay, that's fantastic. It's a, it's a great idea. I mean, that's one of the be- beautiful things about technology. You've got to love it and sometimes hate it, <laughs> sure, <laughs> depending absolutely. if it's behaving itself or not. But yeah, no, it is absolutely brilliant because some people really like to have the the explanation of the of you know f- directly from the creator. Right, right. I've 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 always liked to, to offer that. I know a lot of artists don't like to offer it, and in particular, Dolly did not like to offer it. But um, I find the thought process that I had behind a particular work is more or less what I want to share. I want to tell people why and and what I think about it, and they could they could take it or not. I mean, it's like any piece of art; you you get what you get out of it from seeing it. But uh, I think adding that additional information only makes it more interesting. Huh. Definitely. So finally, Louis, if you had to do something mathematically <laughs> and reward a percentage to Dali himself as acknowledgement for his influence on your work today, what would that percentage be? Uh, I would say it's a difficult question because there's times where I think it, it, it's, it's a sliding scale, but I would say somewhere in the 60 to 70 percent. It's quite significant. Okay. So it, it, it sort of depends, which I suppose is absolutely fair enough, perhaps on a, let's say on a per work basis, yeah. you know, sometimes it'll be more, a higher percentage of Louis and a, a slightly diminished uh, Dali percentage. Yeah, I think that Dali is very deeply ingrained in me. And I think that it might not be completely obvious. Some works, their relevance to Dali, but I, I'm sure it's there in all of them. Okay. Very, very interesting. So have you anything else that is coming up or the exhibition is obviously that's, you know, a, a main event and it's going on for quite a, a good period of time and they they will do some virtual walkthroughs. Uh, we don't have full on full details for those at the moment. Have you anything right. else in, in, in sort of in the works in your plans right now, Louis? Uh, I, I only have new paintings in, in that are planned for the time being. Um, they will be at at the show. Also, be showing a short film that I made that's in 3D that takes the viewer inside the brain to show what thought looks like. I give geomet- geometry and fractal geometry to to thought to show what I think thought looks like as it occurs, mm-hmm. and that will be um, playing during the during the show the whole time. And uh, I, I will be giving other talks at the show. Other than that, I don't have anything planned at the moment. Okay, but I mean, I think some new paintings and the exhibition, obviously, that's quite a lot. It's quite yeah. a lot to to be obviously getting on with. Listen, I'm absolutely delighted. I know we're going to chat further, uh, you know, on, on, on interview or not on interview to explore that common ground that we have, obviously. Uh, in my case, after death. In your case, during life. Mm-hmm. So I, I do look forward to other chats. Um, but thank you so much for taking the time, Louis, to be with us today. My pleasure. I'm happy. Thank ha- you. happy you took the time to talk about it and tell part of the story. It's a really wonderful time. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of stories to be told through my art and how it relates to Dolly. And of course, a million and one anecdotes of working with Dolly. Definitely. So we will probably explore that, as I say, whether it's a, a, a future interview or not. Maybe it will be. Maybe we might do something depending on your schedule. Maybe after the exhibition might be a nice time to, you know, to, to circle back to each other and see, did you get some of those results? You know, seeing people reacting or getting the feedback, hopefully, yeah. hopefully that'll be the case, you know. 
I, I hope to see that. It would be really rewarding. Excellent. Okay. Listen, I'm sure it's going to go very well. Thank you so much for being here, Louis. My pleasure. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Creative Places and Faces. We look forward to bringing you more creative insights into places around the world very soon.